If there's one thing the people of Georgia need to know about this race, it's that Brian Kemp, he sold you out. He didn't look. He didn't want to look. He didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't want anything to do with it. Kemp has repeatedly caved to Stacey Abrams. I think he's afraid of her. Why is he afraid of her? The hell is there to be afraid of? But he bent to Stacey Abrams. I don't think he bent to Joe Biden. I don't think Joe Biden knows what the hell's happening. That was former President Trump Saturday night in a political rally in Georgia railing against Brian Kemp, the latest example of his enduring grudge against the state's Republican governor for the cardinal sin of failing to back his bogus claims that it was he, not Joe Biden, who won Georgia's electoral votes in the 2020 election. Trump's resentment of Kemp has prompted him to endorse the GOP challenger to the governor, former Senator David Perdue in what is shaping up as a make-or-break primary that can well determine just how much sway the former president has over Republican voters. If Purdue pulls out a primary win, Trump will undoubtedly be viewed as the ultimate GOP kingmaker, clearing the way for him to retake the Republican nomination for president in 2024. But if Kemp prevails, and at the moment he has a solid lead in the polls, it could well be a sign that Trump's support is fading far more than Washington pundits have acknowledged. Which will it be? We'll talk to Greg Bluestein, the lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the author of the new book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clyde, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I have been looking forward to this particular episode for some time because nobody knows more about Georgia politics than Greg Bluestein, our guest, to walk us through that uh, minefield in the Peach State. But also because our very own Clydeman, Skullduggery co-host, was at the Trump rally to give us a uh, bird's eye view of what it's like to be immersed in the MAGA crowd at the moment. I know we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we got to deal with uh, President Biden's uh, trip to Poland and his walk back comments about Vladimir Putin or the White House's walk back of his comments. But Danny, you were there Saturday night, surrounded by his uh, fervent supporters. Tell us what it was like. Yeah, I hadn't been to a Trump rally since uh, 2016. And so I was curious to see what they've become. And, you know, a lot of it was similar. I mean, you know, it is kind of like a big party. There are people dressed up in all these colorful outfits and they're singing and, and um, you know, there's this kind of tribal atmosphere, but in a kind of a friendly way because they're all like minded and they're having a good time and they love Trump. And they're true believers. And I guess being around fellow true believers can be fun. But I got to say, compared to uh, the last time, it felt darker and fringier than it was Mm. uh, back then. I think just a larger portion of the crowd 
uh, were people who I think really had gone down the, the proverbial rabbit hole and um, a lot of QAnon people. You had Marjorie well, Taylor Greene speaking had, from the podium, right? You had Marjorie Taylor Greene speaking from the podium who, by the way, I mean, other than Trump, you know, no one created more excitement than Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, all of a sudden, I, I heard this kind of, you know, ripple, just, you know, this excitement ripple through the crowd. I didn't know what was going on. And of course, it was Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was up on the, uh, not on the podium, but um, up on the kind of rafters where she was doing an interview with some right wing media organization. Um, and the crowd just ran toward her. And, you know, with their cameras, taking pictures of her. And then she stood around and she did selfies and she signed Trump hats and they just loved her. But, you know, I talked to a lot of these people and, um, man, there are some weird conspiracies out there right now that I didn't realize. (laughs) Isagoff, you're probably more familiar with them. I saw like two dozen people with T-shirts that had Melania, Jackie Onassis and Princess Diana um, what connects I, these three women? So, you know, inquiring <laughs> minds wanted to know. I stopped a couple of people who were who had who were wearing these T-shirts, and I talked to a guy named Dwayne Michael, who uh, had come to all the way to Commerce, Georgia, uh, from Houston, Texas, for this rally, and um, he said it's about the divine feminine working behind the scenes to take out evil. And I said, well, what do you what do you mean? Uh, can you explain that? And of course, uh, like a lot of conspiracy theorists, he said, well, you'll know at some point, but I can't tell you now. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then I, I moved on to a, another woman, a very sweet elderly woman named Claudia Schuster. And she had come from southern Indiana and she was wearing a T-shirt uh, with John F. Kennedy Jr., on it, and I think you, 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 Mike, might be more familiar uh, with this conspiracy theory. It's, it's, it's she's a QAnon follower, yeah. and actually, she said in her own words, "I went down the rabbit hole," but I think she meant that, you know, not as a negative thing. <laughs> and she had been to Dallas in November 2021, waiting for waiting for JFK Jr. to return from the grave. But didn't it sort of shatter their faith in? these QAnon conspiracy theories when JFK Jr. did not come back as he was predicted to? (laughs) I mean, I don't think, you know, epistemological reality ever shatters uh, the faith of true conspiracy theorists. So, no. But, you know, but she had a sense of humor about it. I asked her what her friends and family back home thought about her beliefs, and she just kind of chuckled and gave me a lovely smile and said, uh, they think I'm crazy as a loon and walked away. (laughs) And, you know, but look. For good reason. Yeah, we can joke about it. And there, you know, there is something that's, that's, you know, kind of funny about it in some ways. But it's also, it's also kind of scary. And the, I would say, look, Trump talked about a lot of things. He talked about Ukraine. I I was surprised how much he talked about uh, Ukraine. What was his take? Oh, it never would have happened had he been president. You know, he pointed out that uh, the Russians never actually invaded uh, any country while he was uh, while he was president. And, you know, th- that they didn't. Uh, they just they just sent mercenaries they just, to they just Syria. Interfe- they sent just uh, mercenaries to Syria to kill yeah, civilians. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh-huh. But look, I mean, he spent most of his time airing grievances about the election and spreading his lies um, and attacking Republican Rhino Republicans, horrible, nasty Rhino Republicans, as he put it, 
for uh, not backing him, trying to overturn the election. And the whole point of this rally was to support seven Republican candidates in Georgia who he endorsed because all seven of them did back his election lies. And, uh, and the main target, of course, was Brian Kemp, who was, uh, who's the sitting governor and was governor at the time uh, and, ref- and refused to call for a special session in the Georgia legislature as part of the process of overturning the, the election and sending a new slate of electors to Congress. And, um, you know, can I just say you talked about how, you know, they seem to be getting fringier and wackier uh, than before. I don't know. I just reading the Meadows Ginny Thomas texts seems pretty crazy on its face. And of course, um, you know, this is coming from not just the wife of a Supreme Court justice, but also the then sitting White House chief of staff. Couple leapt out at me, and I want to get Victoria's take on this. First, this is a, to- a Meadows text to Thomas in which he writes, quote, this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. So I guess Donald Trump is the king of kings here. And I guess, I think it's pretty clear that's what Meadows is talking to. And then, of course, there's the one that um, uh, that Ginny Thomas sends to Meadows, talking about the Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators, elected officials, bureaucrats, social media censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over coming days and will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. And then she adds, I hope this is true. Victoria, you worked on Gitmo for years in the Senate. I mean, that's some really dark stuff, isn't it? It's it's yeah. really, I mean, there, there are two things about it. First, if you were reading these between two just regular people, right? Just you would, <laughs> would you would two think, regular people be exchanging by, but, such right, but, but, but let's just say it's just, you know, two, two, yeah. two folks down at the bar talking to one another, saying this sort of stuff to one another, you would be rolling your eyes wondering what has gotten into these people, how, how kind of grim and dark and how extre- extraordinarily polarized they are and hateful about what's going on in America. And then to think that the two people that you might say be overhearing are the wife of a Supreme Court justice and the chief of staff to the president of the United States makes it more epically frightening. And it's genuinely unnerving that this kind of level of conspiracy thinking has reached the very highest levels of the Republican Party at this stage of the game. And how to unwind that uh, unwind that is the great project of the next three or four years and get back to a kind of a more rash, a more rational, you know, kind of politics between yeah. Democrats I, I and mean, Republicans. I t- totally agree with that. I, I just don't know how 
that happens. I, I think in a way it just has to kind of burn out over time. And look, it, it may be, it may be burning out. And, you know, as I, I pointed out, if, if Kemp wins this upcoming primary, that will be a really forceful sign that what Meadows and Ginny Thomas is talking about does not represent a majority of even Republican voters in Georgia. And yet, by the same token, and 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 you're right, Mike. But but it's only one primary in one state, and and by the same token, many of the kind of this these you know kind of QAnon type style themes made their way into a nominations hearing for a Supreme Court justice just this week. You know, there um, is that. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and and you know uh, supported and and put forward by at least three or four members of the Senate Judiciary Committee with a judge who who literally has nothing to do with any of this stuff. And yet they turned the entire hearing into a forum for their kind of cue dog whistles. I mean, I think Mike does have a point that if the 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 more extreme candidates lose, you know, over and over again, then the more mainstream or people who used to be mainstream Republicans uh, will stop giving these uh, these people oxygen. And eventually, you'll just have what we've always had, which is a relatively small fringe of the population that, you know, believes in, in this stuff. But we're not there yet. And by the way, uh, Ginny Thomas could have easily fit in uh, based on those texts at this Trump rally and among some of these people who I was talking to, some of whom talked explicitly about, you know, you're going to be living off, you know, living in barges off of Gitmo. I mean, the whole Gitmo thing is is something that is, you know, in the dark corners of the Internet, not even so dark. It, you know, it's out there. But look, the immediate question on the table raised by the text, of course, is, you know, what does this mean or should it mean for Clarence Thomas continuing to sit on cases relating to January 6th? And, you know, I, I look, I mean, we have evolved to some extent that uh, spouses, uh, you know, should be able to have their independent lives uh, and not be circumscribed by what their you know, significant other is doing or not doing. On the other hand, this is pretty yeah, extreme and I, I, stuff. Uh, Victoria, your uh, take. Let me on, just say, okay, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, you know, just on that point about yes, I understand the principle of spouses having their own lives and not, you know, having to be responsible for their or one spouse not having to be responsible for the other, but. Clarence Thomas has uh, described them as a unit. They are one person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, look, I mean, a lot of people talk that way about their spouses, and, and that's that's lovely. But, you know, I, th I think, and I was going to ask you this, Victoria, I, th I think on the, the lower courts, the, the, uh, every, everyone but the Supreme Court, there are recusal rules relating to the spouses of judges. Isn't that right? The first thing is, is just to reiterate what you said. They are a team. They show up at places together. They go to events together. They she brings well, him. Well, husbands and wives generally do that sort of thing, right? That's 
Yeah, this is more than socially. This is more than socially showing up at things together. They're showing up at political events together. She's introducing him to make speeches at events that she has helped arrange. So they're they're clearly operating as not just a social team, but they're also clearly operating as a professional team. And so that's that's number one. Number two is that. It is absolutely crazy that the United States Supreme Court, leaving aside Clarence Thomas himself, but the Supreme Court as a whole has no recusal rules. They have it it is essentially up to every individual justice to decide whether or not they do or don't have to recuse themselves from a case. And there Thomas is not the first and he won't be the last justice who has declined to explain why he is sitting on a case where external observers believe it's completely inappropriate for him to do so. There have been instances of other justices who've sat on cases where they've got a financial interest in some of the parties that are in front of them. So it's just it's crazy that they don't have it. And this is simply the most extreme example that we've seen recently. Here's the question. Can Congress even legislate a conflict of interest and ethics rules for a separate branch of government. I guess who would decide the constitutionality of whether or not Congress (laughs) could institute that that rule. So, you know, can they, you know, like there are nine people who get to decide whether or not Congress can force them to uh, adopt or implement a recusal And there's no rule. precedent for Congress doing that other than setting the, the number of members of the Supreme Court, right? Well, they must set the salary. Do they set the salary? Yeah, they set the salary. They set the budget for the Supreme Court. They, they, they create some of the, the rules, the way, the, some of the rules for the way the courts operate. So there's, you know. I think we saw a little bit of a preview this weekend of how uh, the Democrats might handle this, which is Amy Klobuchar saying that, I mean, she was outraged. Clarence Thomas has to recuse himself. But then she went on to say the chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, John Roberts, is going to have to weigh in on this. And I think you'll start, you may start hearing more Democrats saying that, knowing that Roberts is someone um, who is attuned uh, to you know the sort of political uh, noise out there, and uh, whether he'll respond or not, I, I don't know. But um, I think that is going to be their strategy. But you know, there's a second big issue that Democrats have to are facing now, which is whether or not to subpoena Ginny Thomas to testify in the uh, January 6th committee investigation. And um, apparently, the the committee is is split on this. And I think it's it is a bit of a, t- a tough question. And the other thing is what. To what end exactly? Why do you? Why would you actually need her testimony unless you knew that her texts actually um, had some impact? And I'm not sure we know that yet. Yeah. If there's evidence that that Jenny Thomas was indeed kind of a, a, a significant figure in the arrangement of the January 6th rally at the Ellipse and bringing the kind of the more fringy people to Washington, D.C. to march up to the Capitol, then subpoena her by all means, but not because she's Jenny Thomas, but because she was one of the key figures in creating it. But 
you know, and, and I do understand for just from the press reports that there is a pretty significant rift amongst the committee on this right now. So, All right. We do have to uh, take a moment to remind everybody, as if anybody needs a reminder about the horrors of what's going on in Ukraine right now and the continued Russian shelling and killing of civilians. And then you have Biden's you know, forceful speech in Poland about standing against Russian aggression which he then ends with an impromptu ad-libbed line, for God's sake, this man, referring to Vladimir Putin, cannot remain in power. Essentially, not essentially, a, a call for regime change, which, by the way, when we were talking the other day after Biden called Putin a war criminal, I said that's essentially a call for regime change. And here you have it in Biden's mouth. Of course, the White House was not prepared for this new policy of regime change that the president uttered in his speech and had to walk it back immediately. And then Secretary of State Blinken walks it back in Jerusalem on Sunday. Pretty um, embarrassing moment for a president who was, you know, all set to take, you know, kudos for rallying the European allies to fight Russian aggression to then have to flip flop over what's a pretty central element of, you know, what is the goal of our policy right now? Yeah, it seems like it was a pretty serious misstep in an in a environment in which the everyone is carefully parsing every move for whether or not it's uh, provocative or escalatory vis-a-vis the Russians. This seems to have been a ad lib that was obviously as all ad libs are not thought through and certainly provocative to Russia in a way that no one wants at this stage of the game. Uh, you know, thereby, thereby ushering off a madcap day of scrambling, trying to <laughs> right. retract all of this. I mean, Biden is, is, as we all know, notoriously inarticulate and well known for these sort of gaffy ad libs. But man, this was just not the environment in which to be in which to be doing this. And it feeds right into Putin's narrative, which unclear whether he actually believes it or if it's just, you know, part of his you know, kind of propaganda, but, you know, the idea that that's what the United States is all about, about regime change all over the world. We did it in, in Iraq. We tried to do it in Syria. We did it in Libya. And, you know, and, and there is some reason to believe that maybe he thinks uh, we're, our aim is to do it to him. And now more reason to believe that. So now he's not, got the evidence. At all. He's got not the receipts. I love the, actually, uh, David Petraeus's line on uh, one of the Sunday talk shows today. This is a reminder that message discipline has its virtues. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, you know, <laughs> well the irony stated. is, the irony is we complain all the time about message uh, discipline. We always want politici- politicians to go off script, right? And to be authentic. But there are consequences for that. So. All right. We got a lot to get to with our guest, Greg Bluestein. Let me, I want to say one, one just quick thing about Bluestein, who is the, the dean of political reporters in Georgia. And, uh, you know, you and I have spent some time down there and, you know, it's, you, you really don't have conversations with, with anyone involved in politics uh, down there when uh, Greg uh, Bluestein's name doesn't come up because he's so well-sourced uh, and he's a very shrewd political observer himself. At the rally, one of the candidates 
running for office, running for, uh, actually running for the uh, 10th district in Congress is a guy named Vernon Jones. He's a former longtime Democrat who became a Republican pretty recently to join the Trump train. He famously at a at another Trump rally crowd surfed on a whole uh, group of Trump supporters, uh, which was somewhat eccentric and kind of fun. But at this rally, he was giving a speech. And at one point he said, and there's nothing Butstein can do about it. <laughs> By which he was referring to uh, Bluestein. Uh, to Bluestein. <laughs> and I was sitting, I was standing right next to Greg because we were both covering the rally and the, his eyes widened. <laughs> and then he said, no one's called me Butstein since second grade. <laughs> but it's just a measure of the extent to which he is a force in political journalism down there. So we're, we're lucky to have him on the podcast again. All the more reason we should just get to it. We now have with us Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and author of the new book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Greg, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you guys for having me back. It's still weird to see, hear the name author before my name right now. But <laughs> well, I think this is like your third time on Skullduggery. Am I it right is. about that? So I know you've got this new MSNBC contract, but I think you should be holding out for a Skullduggery contract. <laughs> yeah. Look, guys, you want to you wanna give me a contract? I'm all in. No, we don't pay, but that's the <laughs> difference between us. <laughs> we rest on our laurels and uh, uh, intense yeah. <laughs> listenership. A lot to talk about in your book book, but it strikes me that this weekend with Donald Trump coming to Georgia to speak on behalf of David Perdue against Brian Kemp is a really big deal, not just in Georgia, but nationally. Obviously, you know, Kemp is ahead in the polls right now. If Perdue starts to gain and overtakes that lead, that will ratify Trump as the ultimate power broker of the Republican Party and put him on the path for another uh, nomination. On the other hand, if he doesn't, this could be what breaks Trump, both in Georgia and nationally. So give us your take on which one it's going to be. Yeah, it really could be a make or break moment. I tell my editors, and I've written this many times, I, I feel like Georgia is the biggest test of Donald Trump's influence in the entire nation. It's not just because of the sheer number of candidates he's endorsed, which is seven now. He's now endorsed seven candidates in Georgia. And he, I think he has a few more in some other states. Including the insurance commissioner. I mean, well, he's gonna pretty soon he's going to be endorsing the dog catcher in uh, Fulton County or somewhere. I mean, well, that's exactly why Georgia's this big test. It's because it's, it's one thing in other states he's endorsing a lot of incumbents. And in Georgia... Mm -hmm. He's endorsing an extreme number of challengers who have, and some of them long shots. I mean, the guy he endorsed for insurance commissioners is a guy named Patrick Witt, who is very not, put it this way, he's, he's, he's an unknown commodity to the vast majority of Georgians. He was running a long shot campaign for Congress out in the 10th district, which is in rural Northeast Georgia. He's not exactly a household name. And he's running against an incumbent who is also really not a household name either, but who has done really nothing to upset the Trump base at all. He's an insurance commissioner. What, what could he do to, to tick off the base? <laughs> this was an endorsement that was purely, in my view, because the, the incumbent insurance commissioner was linked to Governor Kemp. So this is an example of Donald Trump's vendetta against Kemp growing 
the point now where he doesn't want to just punish Brian Kemp. He wants to punish anyone associated with Brian Kemp. So that's why he's endorsed this opponent, this, this challenger for insurance commissioner. And that's why another strange, surprising, obscure move he made was he is endorsing a challenger to Attorney General Chris Carr, a guy who got into the race days before a deadline. And, and again, another virtual unknown. And yet in, in the politics. governor's race, Trump's endorsement of Purdue hasn't made any dent so far against Kemp. And, you know, a lot of people uh, thought it would and that Kemp was doomed, I think, when Trump uh, turned on him. So is that a sign right there that maybe Trump just doesn't have the power that everybody nationally thought he did? You know, this could go both ways if David Perdue ends up losing. And you're right. He is double digits behind in the, in the polls. He's far behind in fundraising. Governor Kemp has a lot going on his side, including the fact that he's about to go sign dozens of bills. And each time he goes, signs, goes and signs these into law, he'll get a tremendous amount of media attention. And not all of these are, are polarizing issues. Some of these are broad-based, you know, giving public employees pay raises, those types of things. But if David Perdue loses... A, it could be seen as a giant blow to Donald Trump because he's put so much energy and time and effort behind him. He's coming to Georgia for this rally, and it's seen as helping Purdue more than any other candidate. He's had fundraisers for Purdue, but it could also go the other way. He could also kind of wipe his hands clean of, of David Purdue and say, David Purdue is focused too much. He, he wasn't listening to my advice. He could even pull a Mo Brooks on David Purdue. And you never know. I mean, you know, the, the people around Trump say there's no chance of that happening. But clearly what happened with Mo Brooks a few days ago when Donald Trump rescinded his endorsement has freaked out Republicans who have his backing down here to the point where just a few hours before we're taping this, for the first time that I've heard, David Perdue went and said that not only was he upset with the election and what happened in 2020, but he also says he believes he won, that he beat John Ossoff. And we've never heard him say that. But the marquee race that Trump is endorsing is not governor, not insurance commissioner. It's got to be secretary of state, right? That has to be the one that of all of the people he wants to endorse someone who he wants to endorse someone who beats Brad Raffensperger. You know, I'd actually put Governor Kemp a little bit ahead of uh, on his target list, a little bit over Brad Raffensperger. And, and, and the reason I do that is because when he goes to these rallies and, the, and he went, he had two rallies in the runoffs last year. And both of them singled out, I will be back in a year and a half to defeat your governor. He didn't say that about Brad Raffensperger. He said that about Governor Kemp. Mm. And I think that's also, again, the reason why he's trying to punish Kemp allies, because Raffensperger isn't really a Kemp ally. But John King, the insurance commissioner, and Attorney General Chris Carr are. So, but what what is going on in the Raffensperger race? That's one where Trump's endorsement does seem to be moving the needle, right? It is. I mean, Jody Heiss is a, is a Congress member from the 10th District, from the Northeast rural Georgia area. He's actually Brian Kemp's Congress member. And he has staked his entire campaign on Donald Trump's endorsement. And at first, it seemed so difficult for Brad Raffensperger that people like me didn't think he, Brad Raffensperger would even qualify. You know, he was 40 points behind in some of these polls among voters who have already made up their mind. But the beauty is for Brad Raffensperger, most, most voters hadn't made up their mind because they weren't really, as much as we talk about Brad Raffensperger, as much as he's become a household name in many ways, voters still hadn't, conservative voters still hadn't taken sides yet. And um, Jody Heiss has not been raising a lot of money. He has not been able to get his message out. And he's relying on grassroots energy and he's relying on earned media mostly. And he's relying on rallies like we're about to see this weekend. But 
uh, in lieu of all that other, in lieu of a lot of money to get ads out, he's not nearly as well off in the polls as he was expected to be. And this could look like a runoff between him and Brad Raffensperger. Of course, we're not counting Jody Heiss out and in a runoff, everything's off. The, you know, it's a whole new race. And Jody Heiss could well easily defeat Brad Raffensperger. But at this moment, it's a lot closer than a lot of people expect it to be. Just one more beat on Purdue Kemp. And I will point out that I'm reporting today down in Georgia, working out of the uh, what I'd like to call the Skullduggery Georgia Bureau, which uh, happens to be Greg Bluestein's very, very nice house. Uh, so thank <laughs> you, you can for your use hospi- it anytime you want. Thank you for your hospitality. Do we have to pay rent? <laughs> or? I'm just waiting for that contract. Yeah, the <laughs> Skullduggery t-shirts. contract. You can get a Skullduggery right. t-shirt. Yeah, we'll get you a mug. We, still have, we mug. still have some mugs yeah. left. But it it's just strikes me that Purdue, it, it sounds like he thought that with the Trump endorsement, that's all. That was all he was really going to need. And I'm not seeing uh, that he's really articulated much of a, of a message. And he's had a hard time differentiating himself from Kemp getting to the right uh, of Kemp, who's a very conservative governor, despite the fact that he pushed back against Trump's requests for him to overturn the, the election. So what kind of a campaign has, uh, has Purdue run and is part of the reason he's so far behind not just because Trump's seal of approval doesn't have as much power anymore, but he maybe hasn't run the kind of campaign he needed to run. Yeah, first, it's always kind of funny hearing, you know, especially national Republicans who are allied with Trump call Brian Kemp a rhino governor, because he's the first lifelong Republican governor in Georgia history, and he's certainly not running this middle-of-the-road record, right? He is, uh, among the things he's done is He's pushing the biggest gun rights expansion we've seen in Georgia in at least a decade. And he signed into law the strictest anti-abortion law that we've seen in decades in Georgia. And those were two of his, you know, just two of his uh, of his priorities. I mean, in 2018, you know, liberals were aghast because he was driving around in his pickup truck, you know, you know, looking to round up, you know, uh, undocumented workers. He called them criminal illegals. Right. So, yeah. And the Jake ad with shotgun and you know, the chainsaw to regulations, all that. And he hasn't really veered from that image that much either. He's embraced that even in this campaign. So that's the first part. But the second part is David Perdue, he's already used his ace card. That was Trump. That ace card came out really early, right? Shortly after he announced his his challenge to, to Brian Kemp. And his problem is he doesn't have much more, right? And no other endorsement, no other big move will really have the same sort of impact that a Trump endorsement will. There's no way to kind of beat that. Last question on this. One thing he does have is the ability to fund his campaign with a couple of million dollars of his own money because he's a very wealthy man. I don't know. Do you know whether he is writing a check to himself and and for how much? Yeah, he's worth at least $50 million. We just saw his personal financial disclosures. So he's loaded. But we have seen a reluctance from him in recent years to write himself checks. And he didn't need to during the Senate campaign because there's hundreds of millions of dollars coming in from all corners to help the Republicans and to help the Democrats in that race. Um, He's told me he's going to self-invest. We won't see those numbers for a while. He hasn't given me any indication of how much he will, but he needs that money because Governor Kemp has this enormous fundraising advantage and he has the benefit of a lot of earned media, a lot of free media that he'll get just from signing bills. Um, And that's why you're seeing, even though David Perdue's used his ace card, he's trying to pivot to other issues too that that can show a little bit of differentiation between him and Governor Kemp. For instance, he's pushing to eliminate the entire state sales income tax, I should say income tax, which is something like 13 or $14 billion. There's no plan to replace that money. 
but he's saying Governor Kemp hasn't done enough to, to eliminate the, income, the uh, income tax. I will. He's backed the cityhood push for Buckhead, which is a, a wealthy enclave of, of North Atlanta. He, governor Kemp hasn't said whether he supports it. David Perdue says, I would sign that into law if I was governor. And one shocking to me, at least, thing that David Perdue has done, which we've never seen really candidates from either party, major party candidates do, is come out against a major game-changing economic development project. There's a $5 billion Rivian electric vehicle plant that would be built in East Georgia, bringing 7,500 plus jobs. Sort of the thing that Republicans and Democrats crow about when this news came out, Stacey Abrams also applauded it. Well, a few weeks ago, David Perdue said he would work to nix the deal if he was governor because he believes there's all sorts of taxpayer-funded incentives that are being misspent and remember, David Perdue is a corporate, former corporate executive whose companies took a lot of the, <laughs> took advantage of a lot of those public incentives over the years. Um, so it was a kind of a head scratching move, but one meant to energize and mobilize conservative voters in that part of East Georgia. Greg, I'm actually shocked that you could be shocked by anything after <laughs> everything that you've been through covering Georgia <laughs> yeah. politics in the last few years. Um, let's, um, level, let's get to your book, Flipped, and tell me if I've got your premise correct here, that what changed Georgia from a reliable Republican state to the purple state that it is now, which elected two Democratic senators last year, was that Democrats made a strategic shift from spending years trying to recruit independent voters who wouldn't be offended by far left positions, uh, reaching out, uh, moderating their stance on a whole host of issues from gun rights to other matters, and that with Stacey Abrams, the Democrats shifted in 2018. And she determined that's not the way to win statewide elections. We are go to our base, get out the vote, enhance voter turnout, particularly among people of color who tend to vote for us. And that that's what made the big difference. Do I have that right? You have that right. Because we saw that in the 2018 Democratic primary for governor when Stacey Abrams squared off against Stacey Evans. I know it's a little confusing, but where you had, you know, Stacey Evans, who's a state representative from the, the sort of northern suburbs of Atlanta, run the more conventional approach that was the sort of uh, conventional wisdom of Democrats at the time, which was, hey, we can win over, we can win back suburban white voters who used to be consistent Democratic voters who had fled to the Republican Party. We can win them back with sort of middle of the road policies, talking about more education funding, expanding Medicaid, and not veer into liberal territory. And for a long time, you, you heard candidates of that brand steer clear of guns, steer clear of abortion, steer clear of LGBTQ issues, steer clear of a lot of those issues that have been energizing, mobilizing to Democrats in more recent years. I mean, look, in 2014, the two top statewide Democratic candidates were anywhere but near Barack Obama when he came in town. When he came in town, they found excuses to be in rural South Georgia for uh, sudden meetings that came up and sudden events that came up. So you saw that completely change. And Stacey Abrams's approach, it won out, which was mobilize, energize, and connect with voters, especially um, younger and, and voters of color who felt disconnected with the process, who felt like they were being ignored, and who felt like no one was offering them issues that they could get behind. And so when Stacey Abrams entered that 2018 race, she was talking about expanding voting rights, about decriminal, decriminalizing marijuana, about criminal justice reform. She even talked about 
uh, removing the Confederate faces from Stone Mountain, which is this giant you know, state-owned memorial for the rebel warriors uh, of the Confederacy. She also talked about middle-of-the-road issues like expanding Medicaid and, and boosting healthcare funding and, and education funding as well. But she gave voters on the left a, a reason to come out to the polls and figured, hey, you know, we'll also get voters in the middle in, this, in the same process. And she did, right? She, she ended up winning those Atlanta suburbs that the Democrats had long struggled in. But, you know, it strikes me, though, that the downside of this um, is it's made politics in Georgia even more polarized than it was. The Republicans have gone further to the right. The Democrats have gone further to the left. And, you know, the middle ground is rarely spoken for. Yeah, that was a hallmark of 2018 and 2020. There was no rush to the middle, right? Were you so used to polarizing primaries and then a return to the middle? We didn't see that at all in 2018 or 2020. Certainly the candidates started talking a little bit more about middle of the road issues, but they were playing to their bases throughout. I mean, Governor Kemp's strategy in 18 was to go to the counties that Donald Trump won with overwhelming majorities, won with 80% of the vote and get them to 90%. And in some cases he did. And a lot of these were really small counties with only a few thousand voters, but he would push up those margins. He would ring out every conservative voter he possibly could in these parts of the state, partly by pushing his own agenda and his own priorities, which were guns and anti-abortion and things that play to the conservative base, but also partly by vilifying Stacey Abrams, calling her a radical liberal, saying that she was using Georgia as a stepping stone to national office, to the White House, saying she wanted uh, you know, illegal immigrants to vote, all those things uh, that we're also seeing, by the way, in this cycle, too. That's the exact same playbook that Republicans are using against her in 2022. Although, you know, one thing that I've noticed in just a f- the few appearances that Stacey Abrams has done, including a recent interview on MSNBC is it looks like she's steering a course in the middle a little bit as opposed to um, those hot button issues. I've seen her talking about expanding Medicaid. I've seen her talking about education. I actually haven't seen her talking a lot about the issue that she became famous for, which is voter suppression. Uh, I'm sure she will, but that must must be intentional on her part to come off as a little more moderate uh, at this particular point. When she knows that she's got, you know, the Democratic nomination, she's already thinking about the general election. You're exactly right. I mean, if if there's one issue that's dominated her 2022 campaign, it's Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicaid. She wants to expand Medicaid. It's an issue that has dominated her previous campaign as well. I mean, that was a big part of 2018. But the difference now is she doesn't need to prove herself to, to the party's left. She's she's already an icon to progressives and to liberals around the nation. So and she doesn't have a primary opponent. There's not even a token primary opponent. So she's already effectively the Democratic nominee. So she can spend the entire campaign talking to a broader audience than she would have had to if there was a a real competitive Democratic primary. And this is what keeps Brian Kemp's advisors up at night. Because in 2018, their worry shortly after Brian Kemp won the nomination in a really um, heated battle that really kind of previewed this year's battle against the lieutenant governor at the time, Casey Cagle, was that Stacey Abrams was trying to pull off this sort of twofer. On the one hand, she was this hero to the progressives because of all the positions she staked out and all the national appearances she had made. On the other hand, there was a segment of the Georgia electorate that saw her as a consensus building, pragmatic lawmaker who was willing to work across the party line. And they were worried about that twofer doing Brian Kemp in. And that's exactly what they're worried about this time around too. 
because you know to just to a lot of georgia democrats she doesn't have to go prove her her liberal uh, credentials anymore she's already done that but right now she's aiming to prove that she's more than you know she's more than the policies she staked out in 2018 that she can also talk to a broader audience and and win and use that audience to win in 2022 meanwhile in addition to these statewide races Georgia may have a critical role to play in congressional races and in the the control of the, the U.S. House of Representatives, all of this being done in the context of a redistricting year. So Georgia redistricted all of its 14 congressional districts, amongst other things, engineering a head-to-head showdown between Lucy McBath and another Democratic member of Congress to represent a new district. Tell us about how the Georgia congressional elections are playing out and whether or not they, uh, the Georgia legislature may or may not have gerrymandered the seats there. They did. They, they definitely gerrymandered the seats and, and they're, you know, willing to that, and say that in not so many words, right? That, hey, you know, elections have consequences and Republicans control the, the legislature. And they also often point to, hey, Democrats did the same thing to a greater degree in, in some sense back when uh, they controlled the legislature. Uh, what Republicans did in Georgia they could have tried to flip two seats. They, they really could have. They could have tried to draw two Democratic seats to be Republican-leaning. But they played the safer bet because they were worried, there was Republicans worried that, yes, they could have flipped two seats theoretically this election cycle, but both of them could have flipped back later on in this decade. Instead, they played it more safely, and they drew one district to be very solidly Republican, and in the meantime, drew another district that was a swingy district to be very solidly Democrat. And so that was where Lucy McBath found a problem because she was in, she happened to be in the district they, they drew to be very solidly Republican. This, the district she represents now spans the Northern Atlanta suburbs where it used to be Republican and now has shifted decisively Democratic. It's being re- redrawn now to go all the way up to the foothills of the Georgia, North Georgia mountains. Um, it ends closer to Tennessee than it does to the city of Atlanta. So it's a, it's a solidly red district and Lucy McBath um, saw the same numbers that we all did and said, there's no way I can win here. Instead, I'm gonna move over to the seventh district right next door to Gwinnett County, which is the swing district that was drawn even more democratic. And that's where she faces Carolyn Bordeaux, who was the only democratic house member to flip a Republican controlled seat. It was a very close election in 2020. And uh, she narrowly lost in 2018. And she ran as a moderate. She ran as a you know pragmatic consensus builder problem solver. And she's done some things since then, like criticize uh, the, the voting process for the bipartisan infrastructure bill that has turned off some liberals. And so right now we're seeing something of a liberal versus moderate dynamic being played out in that House race, even though their voting records are, are largely similar. So obviously, Georgia is the state where Donald Trump most spectacularly tried and failed to change the election results. And, you know, to the point where we have a active ongoing criminal investigation by the Fulton County District Attorney into whether the efforts by Trump and his uh, uh, cronies, including Mark Meadows in the news uh, this week with Mm -hmm. uh, his text exchanges with Ginny Thomas. But, you know, the Republican critique on this, and we've heard this from when we last had Brad Raffensperger on the show, is that Stacey Abrams essentially, you know, set the predicate for this when she refused to concede 
her 2018 defeat to Brian Kemp. And that sort of laid the groundwork or set a precedent for Trump to do what he did in 2020. And I, you know, you quote her uh, non-concession speech when she lost, saying this is not a speech of concession, because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper, essentially challenging the legitimacy of Kemp's win. Do Raffensperger and the Republicans have a point on this? So to to a degree, right? Stacey Abrams never conceded, but she also acknowledged she wasn't the governor, right? She and she said that many times. She goes, "Look, I'm not. I don't live in the governor's mansion. I live in my place in in East Atlanta." She didn't try to overturn the election results. She didn't pressure state officials to reverse the outcome or invalidate millions of. But she rhetorically challenged the legitimacy of Kemp's win. She did. And that's why I said to a degree, because also state the state party would send out press releases around that time with Governor Kemp with an asterisk over it. Right. So there was a question about and I remember thinking at the time, OK, what if a natural disaster happens and we need to all rally around, you know, both parties need to rally around the governor because something horrible is happening in Georgia. What does all this asterisk business mean to to the faith of Georgia voters. So you're right. She, she, and she has challenged the legitimacy of the system, which she thought, felt was unfair because um, if you remember, Brian Kemp at the time was secretary of state, which is in charge of overseeing election results. And he never resigned from that seat um, even during the election. So what Stacey Abrams would say was he was the referee calling his own ball game. It's more nuanced than that, right? The, elect, the Secretary of State has oversight, but it's not directly involved in the ministering of, of the election processes. That's local officials. Um, and oftentimes, some of the biggest problems were happening in Democratic-controlled counties uh, where there was just ineptitude or, or technical or legal, I mean, or, or, or um, technical glitches and, and, and lack of equipment, things like that were, were plaguing the system. But yes, she, is, she has long said that that system and that Brian Kemp's aggressive and strict interpretation of voting laws made it a lot harder for for Democrats to win because that meant that um, there was strict use of absentee ballot matches for signatures. A lot of absentee ballots were thrown out because they didn't exactly match the signature for when the voter initially you know registered to vote. That provisional ballots were being kind of counted arbitrarily. That you know there were strict deadlines in which to count absentee ballots, which meant that some of the votes that could have gone to her were tossed out. In the end, there just simply wasn't enough votes in question to, even if she had won them all, to make up that margin because she lost by 55,000 or so votes. But at the same time, she was kind of protesting the overall system, which is still, it wasn't just Republicans who were peeved by that. There's many Democrats who were peeved by the fact that she she didn't concede. But this is something that she, it still remains a, a sort of at the heart of her election campaign now. But Greg, the, the, the distinction that you're making is, which I think is totally valid is, you know, Stacey Abrams was challenging the results, but she didn't try to overturn the election. She was not acting as an extremist in the way that Trump did and a lot of Republicans in in Georgia did. And I want to ask you about that. In Georgia, you had, it was like ground zero for some of the biggest conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. Um, You've got Lynn Wood uh, as one example, the lawyer uh, down here, and you had all of these threats of violence uh, that a lot of people, election administrators and candidates uh, were receiving on a regular basis, some really scary stuff. So the question for you after having reported this book and having reported on Georgia for all of these uh, years is, is there something different about Georgia? Is there something unique here? Or is it that we're just paying so 
close attention to Georgia because it was so close. I'm just wondering if there are other kind of cultural and historical factors here that play in. Yeah, this. I think there's a few. It's, it's one that just like other states, there's a significant number of Republicans who believe Trump's lies about rampant fraud and, and, and widespread cheating in a rigged election. And we've had polls at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that have showed showed that among the Republican electorate. And, that, and that's not what percentage, what percentage of Republican voters don't accept that Biden won the state? I need to go back to look at the exact poll numbers that we did in January, I think it was. But there was a plurality of Republicans who thought there was some issues with with the election. And there is a significant number, I think it was 20 or so percent, who believed that the election was either rigged or was uh, that, that Donald Trump won. So that's that's a big number, right? When you look at, and I've seen other polls that kind of echo that. And these are people who are, you know, buying into the, the far right sort of conspiracy theories. And um, these are the, these are the folks that are the the pro Trump loyalists, the heart the heart of the pro Trump movement in Georgia that will be at the rallies that we're covering, and and who will vote for the Trump ticket no matter what. So that's a part of it. But the other, the, I think, the bigger part of it is that Georgia's so close, right? In 2018, it was the closest gubernatorial election we've had since the 1960s. In uh, 2020, Donald Trump was divided by, was separated from Joe Biden by about 11,000 votes. And then the Senate runoff races were, you know, tens of thousands of votes, not hundreds of thousands. So we've gone from a state where it was eight to 10 point gaps to, you know, one to two point gaps. And so that means that any of these voting issues, the, the election law that Georgia passed last year and the new election law that it's under debate right now. Any of these issues, the, the, even if it affects just a few thousand voters, that could be a difference maker in a race where it is a 50-50 type state. We're, we're probably, we're one of the two or three clo- most closely divided states in the nation, right up there with Arizona and I guess New Hampshire. On the uh, Trump's efforts to, uh, air quotes, stop the steal in Georgia, you know, obviously we all listened to the uh, the phone call with Raffensperger. Uh, we all heard Gabe Sterling's sort of pushback to what Trump was doing. But I was really fascinated by a nugget in your book about the events of December 14th when the Georgia legislature met to certify Biden's victory. And you find out there's a meeting in room 216 of the state capitol in which a bunch of Republican legislators and uh, activists are gathering. And you try to get into the meeting and they don't let you in. And they tell you something about what was going on that was not true. So tell us what happened on December 14th in room 216 when you were trying to cover it. Yeah, I know you said I shouldn't be shocked by anything in Georgia politics anymore, but that was another time I was shocked because I know a lot of the, I mean, I talked to a lot of Republican activists and, and, and would-be delegates all the time. And I just talked to them for over the weekend saying, hey, is there anything I should be aware of that you're, you guys are planning? And I got a big no. So I go in to cover um, the formal vote, electoral college vote in at the Georgia Capitol, where the 16 Democratic electors vote and cast their ballots for Joe Biden. It was, you know, not a huge story, but an important one. And as I'm walking to the third floor of the state Capitol, I go by room 216, which is this giant wooden door right near the, the foyer of the state Capitol, right near these beautiful marble steps that kind of splay out. And I see a lot of familiar faces. Among them is the Georgia GOP chair, David Schaefer. Among them is a few state senators. Among them are a bunch of activists I know pretty well from over the years of covering them. 
and they're meeting behind a very slightly open door. So I try to walk in and a guy at the door says, we're having an educational meeting. It's a closed door affair. I'm like, okay, maybe it's just, you know, still doing the, you know, right in the throes of the pandemic. So maybe it was the first time these guys were getting together and they happened yeah, to all School be... funding issues they were trying <laughs> yeah, to resolve. Could it could right? have been something yeah. like that or infrastructure yeah. or even some party strategy meeting. That happens. Caucus meetings happen all the time. So I go upstairs to go cover the this very emotional, there's tears. Stacey Abrams is there. Nakima Williams, the, the party chairwoman is there. Calvin Smyrie, the longest serving Democrat the longest serving anyone in the Georgia legislature was all there. And as I'm staying upstairs, kind of reporting on what was happening, I get a bunch of texts saying, Hey, there's something going on on, on, on two sixteen, and it's no educational meeting. And I couldn't get down there because I'm covering history. And so, you know, one of my colleagues goes down there and they are having a shadow slate. This is the Republican, the 16 Republican electors who, who would have cast their ballots for Donald Trump had he won Georgia we're still meeting even though he lost Georgia and casting their ballots for Donald Trump in a basically a mock ceremony, a, a fraudulent ceremony, a sham. And that was for the purpose of, as David Schaefer told me right afterwards, because I scrammed down there after the, the upstairs ceremony was over, he said, this is a just in case, just in case our legal cases would succeed. And by then, all the legal cases that were you know, all these legal cases that had already been thrown out, they've been laughed out of the courts, dismissed without hearings in some cases. Um, they had misspellings and typos and all these, they were hastily put together. And so to me, I said, I asked him, I said, aren't you worried this sets a precedent? Couldn't, if a Republican won fairly and squarely in Georgia, aren't, don't you worry that Democrats could do the exact same thing you guys are doing now and have these sham ceremonies? He goes, that's their right. I was, okay. So I, I reported it and, and also uh, wrote about it in the book. But what you learned later was that it was part of a uh, extensive coordinated national strategy legal yep. strategy this was this was not some standalone um, brainchild of david schaefer or the or the georgia republicans this was part of of a strategy that republicans that donald trump's allies put together for every close state where they had this sham slate of electors um they were just in case the legal cases were overturned but, but a lot of people saw it as more nefarious than that 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 they could you know promote themselves as the real electors that they could go around the state and say they have a they have a uh, a rival slate that Congress on January sixth, when they were formally set to vote on Joe Biden's confirmation of his electoral call victory, um, that they could put forward the Republican slate and potentially try to vote on that. And so right now, all those sixteen electors are under under scrutiny, and two of them, David Schaefer and another, were, were being questioned by congressional investigators about their role on January sixth. Um, but at the time. It was not downplayed in Georgia either. It was this, it was again, I'm mean, overusing it, but it was a shocking event for me to cover. So a couple of things on this. Do we mm -hmm. know if Schaefer, presumably the ringleader of this, got a directive from the White House, from Trump world to do this? Had Was he sent a copy of the uh, notorious John Eastman memo that sort of laid out you know, how Trump could still win the election by having Vice President Pence anoint or uh, designate these phony electors as the real electors. Was this coordinated to that extent? Yeah, he has been very tight-lipped about how this all came about. But I can tell you, he's very close to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump even endorsed him to be the Georgia GOP chair. And remember, this happened shortly after 
the three biggest setbacks in modern Georgia Republican history, right? This happened shortly after Donald Trump lost the Georgia election, making him the first Republican to lose the presidential vote in Georgia since the 1990s in, a, in a, about a quarter century. And then it came after Republicans lost those two U.S. Senate seats. So even despite that, Donald Trump comes in, endorses David Schaefer. He writes this sort of campaign memo that basically blames the defeats on Brad Raffensperger, <laughs> lays it at his feet, and retains control of the party apparatus. So I, he hasn't said whether or not he heard directly from John Eastman or, or Trump's campaign, but we can affirmatively say that he's very close with the Trump, uh, Trump machine. So, Greg, you're, um, you know, Trump is a kind of a looming presence throughout the book. But in the last, say, third of the book, you see how he is kind of bullying Republican candidates to do what he wants them to do and putting them kind of between a rock and a hard place, making their lives extremely difficult. Talk a little bit about that dynamic uh, with the Republican candidates, talking about Purdue, Kelly Loeffler, and then, of course, Brian, uh, Brian Kemp, although he wasn't, he wasn't running, and how they navigated that, who navigated it well, who didn't, uh, and what we can learn from, from all of that. Yeah, in the words of one Kelly Loeffler strategist, it was as if you know, they, they were hostages with their hands tied behind their back and the gun cocked at their head at all times. I mean, they were living in constant fear that Donald Trump could turn against them at any moment and that they had to appease his every escalating demand. And the demands went from they, Donald Trump wanted them to back a suddenly changed his mind about stimulus checks and wanted them to back a $2,000 stimulus check that Democrats had been advocating for to their demands that they object to the Electoral College confirmation. And so you saw this slow and steady escalation. First, it was them calling for Brad Raffensperger to resign, which he wasn't the villain that he is right now in the Republican Party. He was seen as just, you know, a kind of a, a low profile Republican figure at the time. Well, shortly after the November election, both U.S. senators called for Brad Raffensperger to resign. And then it was backing the Texas lawsuit that, of course, failed in the U.S. Supreme Court, but that advocated to invalidate four million Georgia votes and to kind of toss out um, Joe Biden's win in Georgia, essentially, and then just kept on going up. And it went all the way to the night before the runoff vote, where Kelly Leffler took the stage at a Donald Trump rally and said, yes, she would vote to block electoral confirmation, electoral college confirmation in Congress of Joe Biden's victory. And the entire time, I'm sitting there talking to operatives, aides, volunteers, people who work for the campaign in some some form or fashion, and they're all desperately nervous that Donald Trump could turn on them at any moment. And, and as it was, even with his support, he was hardly talking about them. He'd be at rallies in Georgia. And the first rally he, he went to in Georgia was in Valdosta doing the runoffs. And um, when, when he introduced Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, you couldn't even hear the two senators talk because they were drowned out by chants of stop the steal, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. They had to cut short their speeches. It got so loud. And there was this insinuation, there was this sort of suggestion that Donald Trump was happy to encourage that they weren't doing enough to back his claims that the election was flawed or fraudulent or, or whatever. And so they kept on having to go down this path. And each time they went further to the right, it either alienated more Democrats or more moderate voters, but also wasn't doing them any favors of winning over those pro-Trump voters. Because remember, that was at the same time where Republicans, conservatives were hearing that mail-in ballots were fraudulent and that the Dominion voting machines 
that were used in many of these states were somehow flawed, even though they weren't. And so I talked to so many voters who said, who were hardcore Republican voters who said they didn't trust the system enough to vote. And my best sort of anecdote about this is that Kelly Leffler's campaign even had its own spreadsheet of thousands of names of dedicated Republican voters. And the name of the spreadsheet was GOP not voting, because no matter what they felt they did, no matter how much they tried to to encourage and mobilize these voters, um, their campaign had come to the conclusion that these guys were staying home. So when uh, Kleiman and I were both down in uh, in Georgia several weeks ago, about a month or so ago, I guess, it was clear Republicans were uh, bullish about their prospects uh, this year. They had the wind of their sails. Biden's poll numbers uh, in Georgia are pretty low, even lower than they are yeah. nationally. We were told that there was one uh, internal poll that the Warnock people took in which among white voters, Biden's approval rating was something like 17%, which is- And overall in the AJC poll, it's a 33%. That's that's abysmal. 33. So my, que- my question is, since then, the news obviously has been dominated by the events in Ukraine. And uh, Biden has played a uh, big role in um, co- in pushing a vigorous U.S. response to that. Not as vigorous as the Ukrainians would like, but um, certainly he has helped um, uh, bring the NATO allies together. And then also another development just over the last week, which is the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearing, which um, may well energize African-American voters. Your sense as to whether events over the last month, Ukraine and the uh, Brown-Jackson hearings, have changed the needle in Georgia at all? I talked to Republicans who are all over the map. I mean, some are very bullish, very optimistic that the rising inflation, which in in Atlanta is among the highest in the nation, 10.5% plus in a a recent study, it's it's extremely high and, and, and Democrats and Republicans are feeling um, the brunt of that. I've talked to Republicans who feel like the headwinds, you know, against against the party in power in general are going to really help them. But I've also talked to Republicans who are continue to be freaked out about the Trump versus everyone dynamic. You know, the Trump field infighting. The, who feel that even after the the May primary or the June runoff, the Republicans will still be at war with one another. That the damage has been so deeply inflicted on Brian Kemp and on whoever else emerges from the primary, if it is Brian Kemp, that it'll be hard for them to shake that. And they look no, no further than Donald Trump's last visit to Georgia in September when he said he'd rather have Stacey Abrams as governor than Brian Kemp. Um, and Stacey Abrams didn't show up, I should point out, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty good sign of just how low Biden had sunk in, in the state. Yeah. So there's that. So there's this. There's these two sort of dueling narratives. Um, and we also don't know how bad inflation will be come October when, when voters really kind of buckle down and, and, and make their moves. But we do know right now um, that both the top candidates on the Democratic ballot are playing right in to the fears about inflation. They're not ignoring them. Stacey Abrams is talking about a more equitable economy and more help for small businesses. And Raphael Warnock in particular is, I mean, the first words out of his mouth after he qualified to run was, I am going back to Washington to fight to lower prices. Um, he wants to cap insulin. That's one of his big pushes. He wants to suspend the federal gas tax, which would save you know about a quarter per gallon, maybe a little less. He wants to uh, go after price gougers 
uh, on the oil market and elsewhere. So these are sort of, you know, they're not controversial moves. These are bipartisan-ish, you know, consensus-ish type moves that, that aren't going to have a lot of Republican pushback. Uh, literally, as I'm talking, Congress must act now to lower prescription drug costs for seniors is a press release from Raphael Warnock that just now. Um, so those are the issues he's talking about right now. He's not talking about um, liberal issues. He's not talking about federal voting rights expansions. Or- you don't get a sense that the events in Ukraine have had a political impact. So I far. do because of the gas prices, as, as strange as that sounds. You know, and there could be, there has been a little bit more focus on on the fact that Herschel Walker has no, you know, no political experience whatsoever and no, uh, and he's the Republican front runner. No foreign policy experience. No foreign policy experience. Former, he's issued some- Running um, back- yeah, he's yeah. issued some confusing statements about NATO's role, wanting NATO to get even more involved in, in, in chastising America for. And not- he has not faced any real scrutiny yet because he hasn't. He doesn't speak to the nas- to the national, or really, he doesn't speak to the local media either, mainstream media, right? And and he has not and will not debate during the primary. Does that? Yeah. How much does that change in the general election? Is he going to have to debate? Is he going to have to sit down with people like you? He has mostly stuck to friendly media outlets, right? ESPN talking about sports and sports outlets talking about his, you know, his, his background and um, far right media for the most part. He's done a few other interviews very rarely and very, we have not seen him being pressed on a lot of those issues about his foreign policy stances, for instance, or about really, I think one of the biggest issues that he's, he's, he's being asked about is immigration. He said in 2015, he essentially believed in, in a form of amnesty. Um, in a form of uh, uh, letting letting um, people who came in here illegally get some sort of form of citizen have a pathway to citizenship, and he's never really answered questions about that. And, and in internal polls I've seen, if Republicans get that message out, they're the money to get the message out. It's very damaging to him, but he doesn't have to worry about that because his top rivals are way behind him in the polls. They're all in the single digits. In some of these polls, he's at 60, 70, 80 percent. And the biggest indication to me that he's not worrying about them whatsoever is he's never uttered any of his rivals' names. So as far as I know, he's never said Gary Black, who's the agricultural commissioner, or Latham Sadler, who's a Navy SEAL, or Kelvin King, who's a construction executive. He's never mentioned them because he doesn't need to. And there was a there was a thought that someone like Latham Sadler, who has been in Afghanistan and been in combat scenarios and and uh, you know went through Navy SEAL training and worked in the Trump White House. There was a thought that he would kind of leverage and, and, and show people that, hey, this time we need someone with foreign policy. And I've been out there. I've, I've, I've been in the, you know, the mountains of Pakistan and I've been in Afghanistan and I know I've helped advise Trump on foreign policy uh, disasters. There was a thought that he would kind of gain a little bit more traction maybe with the message. But again, you're going up against a juggernaut. You're going to go up against a guy with basically universal name recognition who has both Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump's endorsement and who has the money to sort of just drown everything else out if he wants to spend it. Well, Greg, we will undoubtedly want to um, continue to hear from you because undoubtedly Georgia is going to be in the center of the political universe uh, for the rest of this year and beyond. So we will hereby give you an honorary uh consulting contract I get a, I get a contract. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and uh and we want to tell our listeners greg's excellent book flipped how georgia turned purple and broke the monopoly on republican power is out and uh, available at your nearest bookstore thanks for joining us
Thank you for having me. And now you're going to go on the little um, uh, Amazon thing saying, Isakoff says, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. See if that gives you a bump. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot. 